Hello. Hi. Uh, good evening. So, uh, Rob McCoy has so graciously invited me to teach tonight, and I just, uh, his encouragement has been such a blessing to me. Uh, you guys know him personally, but I, I'm just getting to know him. I've known him for a couple of years now, and he just, every time I see him, he's always showering me with encouragement, and it's just an amazing thing. And so, tonight we are going to uh, continue in a study on the life and times of Jesus Christ. Uh, two weeks ago, Aaron taught on uh, the temptation in the wilderness. And then last week, uh, Zach taught on uh, Jesus turning water into wine. And so uh, tonight I'm going to talk about Jesus cleaning house from John chapter 2, 13 through 25. But first, I'd like to pray and just kind of open us, open us into this and before we open the word and get into the message. So I'll pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, I just pray. I just come before you, Lord. Um, uh, just a, a man seeking uh, your will, and I pray a church seeking your will, that we would be able to hear a word from you, from your word tonight, Lord, that you would uh, sanctify us, uh, you would cleanse us, purify us, as you've purified this church, Lord. Um, in the first century, this was a temple, uh, but now we are the temple. Uh, we are the temple of your Holy Spirit, Lord, so I pray tonight you would... Um, Show us the truth in this word and um, give us just this, uh, this time to, to just be a blessing um, to us all. So I ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ, amen. So what if someone came to you and wanted to do a story of your life? First, they start with the invitation. Uh, can, can, I, can I get to know you? Can I, can I learn your, your life? Can I learn a story of your life? Then it goes, it's followed up by a uh, getting to know your family getting to know your loved ones, getting to know your church, getting to know people that care about you, uh, spending time with your friends, even your enemies. Uh, after a while, they, they get ready to publish the papers, the lectures, the, the story, the DVDs about your life. But you quickly find out that they have completely defaced your life. They painted you out to be weak, um, without conviction, lost, um, faithless. Uh, you name it, they've, they've done that to your life. Um, and church, I, I believe they've done this to Jesus Christ. In the same way that that illustration works out, the same thing has happened to Jesus Christ. Our cult, culture has so warped the message and story of Jesus Christ that it, it is, it is, a, it is a, a, just sad that we see this every day. And it's a, in our relativistic culture, it's um, minimized his message, minimized his word, minimized the power of his word, and minimized uh, the message he's sent to us. But thank God we have the Word of God, that we have an opportunity to know who He is and who He is not. Jesus Christ is not just a good teacher. Good teachers do not claim to be God. Jesus Christ is not just a good example. Good examples do not turn, do not, do not turn, do not run around with sinners, drunks, and tax collectors. Jesus Christ is not a religious paranoid or a fanatic. Madmen do not speak those words. Madmen do not use those clear thoughts. And madmen do not show that kind of love. Jesus Christ is not a religious phony. Religious phonies do not rise from the dead. Jesus Christ is not a phantom. You don't nail a phantom to the cross and he has blood to shed. Jesus Christ is not a myth. Myths do not set the calendars of history. Jesus Christ is God in the body, come to show us who God is and what He is like and to redeem us. He is God. 
okay? And so we're going to jump right into our text now. It's a John 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 13 through 25, okay? I'll wait for you to get there. Okay. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Okay. This evening, uh, I'm going to show you that Jesus Christ is illustrating three attributes of his deity in this scripture. He's showing you uh, clearly um, who he is in it, three different aspects. And so while I'm unpacking this, I, I, I want to challenge you to, uh, by the Holy Spirit, that you will, you will see these things in Christ and that it will drive you to a deeper level of commitment, deeper, deeper level of devotion to Christ and his authority in your life. As him being uh, Lord of our lives, there's a, there's a call he's giving us in these three attributes. And in this, in, the, in this Gospel of John, John has two major purposes. The first purpose for his letter, his account, is that you will have life through the Son. That by believing you will have life through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And then his second purpose for his, uh, his, his epistle, I'm sorry, for his Gospel, is that you will um, know that Jesus Christ is God. It's clear, it's in every single verse throughout the, from the beginning to the end. He is set apart from the other Gospels. He has different things that he brings out. He embellishes other aspects of who God is to show you who Jesus is. And it's, 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 it's so important that we don't miss that. We have to see that in every, in every aspect of this message tonight. And, and, and these three um, attributes that I'm going to share tonight are, first, uh, his passion for reverence. He had a passion for reverence. And second, his power of the resurrection. His power found in the resurrection. And then third, his perception of reality. Jesus Christ had a serious perception of reality. Truly the only perception that matters in reality. Being the word, being the logos, being the truth that Christ is. He only, he's the only one that matters when it comes to how we look, who we are, where we're going, what matters in life. So this being one of his attributes, I want to really spend time on each one of these to just show you so that we can come under Christ and we can get to know who he is. So let's start with our first attribute, his passion for reverence. Okay, let me draw your attention to verses 13 through 17. 
I'm going to read this again just to kind of remind us where we're going. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. He said to those who sold doves, Take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So let's walk into the first century here. Okay, You have the Jewish standard of going to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. This is one of three important feasts. You have the feast of the Passover, the feast of the Pentecost, and the feast of Tabernacle. In these three feasts, God is reminding his people who he is in every aspect. It's symbolic of the gospel, frankly. And especially the Passover, because the Passover is the most important of the feasts for the Jewish people. Every time they look back to this, this feast time, this seven days, they're looking back to the time that Moses brought his people out of Egypt. A time that was uh, just full of uh, disarray, pain, lost, lostness for the Jewish people. They had been taken, they had been enslaved, they had been murdered, they had been prostituted out to this Egyptian polytheistic nation. And so this is important that God has somehow that has brought them out of this. And they, they, they spend time in this Passover uh, reflecting on that. That's, that's, that's the meaning of this. But I'm going to argue this is just as valuable as how we look back at the gospel of Jesus Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection. It's a picture of the same thing. There's a parallel that we need to recognize that's there for us. So this is going to bring us right into why Jesus is so upset, so incensed in this temple cleansing. Because this is a holy holiday. God knows that. Therefore, we should react in that way. Okay? And so, let's, let's, go, in, let's go into this. We have, um, we have um, the section going into Exodus here. So, I, what I'm going to do, I'm going to bring us into this, and I want to I read a an excerpt from Exodus that's going to really walk us into what this Passover was, detail by detail. And every aspect of it, as it's written in Exodus, really shows us the importance and the, and the weight of this Passover. So if you could, turn to Exodus chapter 12, 1 through 15. I'll let you get there. All right. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be for your, be, be your month, beginnings of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor's neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your account for the, for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day, 14th of the same day, and then the whole assembly, assembly of, of, of the, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Remember, Jesus Christ was killed at twilight. This is also symbolic. Just to slow down and see that. And you kill the blameless lamb at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost, on the two doorposts, and on the lentil of the house, where they eat it. And then they shall eat of the flesh 
on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, and the, bitters or, the bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire. Its head, its legs, its entrails, you shall not, you shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist and your, sand, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the, and the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be a memorial. So let's remember this. This shall be a memorial. You shall keep it as the feast of the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by, by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove the leaven, which really signifies sin, from your houses. Whoever eats leaven, leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person should be cut off from Israel. So as you can see, this is a very holy day. This is one of the holiest feasts of the Jewish year, as we talked about earlier. So Christ is, is incensed. He is a, he's seen the Jewish behavior. He's seen the way they've, 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 they've just totally blown it, according to the word of God. They've totally blown it. They've, they've, they've made a mockery of this. The money changers is, is actually a, it's a, it's an interesting thing. It's not very uncommon for these money changers, but they spent time exchanging the Roman currencies, and wherever, wherever the Jews were from other regions, they were traveling to Jerusalem, so they have different currencies. And so they have to use the Jewish currency, according to the word, to, in, or, in, these, uh, in these sacrifices. So they had to get the money. They had to exchange their funds. And the Jewish people and Jewish leaders knew this. So they set up a really a market, a racket, for this process, where, it, get, get this, it was, about a, it was about a 50% markup, some Jewish historians say. So if you're going to exchange your money from Roman coins to Jewish shekels, you're going to pay 50%. These are poor people that are coming to be a part of the holy Jewish holiday. And they are being uh, subjected to big business. There are between 1 to 2 million people in the first century, Jewish people, traveling to Jerusalem in this time. So you can imagine, this is big, big business. This is a multi-million dollar enterprise that is, that is taking place and it's really um, a very sad thing. And, and Jesus Christ is going to stand for it. He's not going to stand for it. He begins to kick, stop, punch, whatever. He grabs a whip of cords. He's whipping oxen. He's whipping uh, sheep. He's whipping people. He cleans out the temple. M- mind you, oxen weigh between 500 and 800 pounds. So he could have killed people. This is a mad Jesus. This is different than the Jesus that are culture paints. This is a Jesus that is sanctifying holiness for his people. Okay? And, and it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing because if you, if you have an idea of the scale of what's happening right now, the scale of this temple is pretty big. This is two to three football fields in size. He cleans out the entire temple. This is the passion of his reverence, Right? How can one man do this? This is not merely a man. This is an attribute of his deity. 
I can imagine him with the same eyes of the book of Revelations when he comes back. His eyes are, his eyes are full of fire, and he's, he's, he's cleansing the temple. He is showing them that this is not going to happen. Not in my father's house. But then, in contrast, his verbal, uh, his verbal reaction to this is, take these things away, do not make my, house, my father's house a house of trade. And this is really another practical application. His disciples remember what was written. Zeal for your house will consume me. Let me read the scripture that they were referring to. They were referring to uh, Psalm 69, 9 through 12. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gates speak against me, and I am the song of the drunkards. So, let's slow down. Let's go back. So, his disciples see him cleanse the temple, and they say, "Zeal." They they remember the scripture, "Zeal for my house." The scripture I just read is from King David from Psalms. So he had this moment where he was the only man standing for what was holy, what was right. He remembers what that's like. That the reproach of a lost world on him. And it really, it's the same way for us. That when you choose in your life as a believer to stand with Christ, there's going to be a reproach. There's going to be the same things that David dealt with in, in Psalms, and really the same thing that Jesus dealt with. He was, he was the only guy that cleansed the temple, remember that. It wasn't a group of them, he was the only guy that was standing for what was right, what was righteous. Okay, and so my question to you is, do you hate sin? What is your relationship to sin? What is your relationship to coarse joking? Uh, your relationship to, uh, your, what's your thought life like? All of these things correlate to reverence. All of these things correlate to, correlate to what Christ was doing in that place. Except for the difference now is that the temple that he cleared back in the first century is now you. You are the temple of God. The Apostle Paul says it in 2 Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Every believer is sanctified. Every believer is like the temple that Jesus Christ cleansed. So he's called us to have a sanctified life. In the same way that the Jews were called by Moses in Exodus to remove the leaven from their homes on that first day of the Passover, that leaven signifies sin. They couldn't partake in the Passover if they had sin in their lives. And so for our lives, it's the same thing. We cannot, take, we cannot partake in the Passover, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we have sin in our lives. So Christ is calling us to remove the leaven from our lives. Remove it from our lives. And this is, a, this is an awesome thing that he gives us an opportunity to do this. By the Holy Spirit, not by our own will. This is not our job. He gives us the power by his spirit to do this because we are the temple. Okay, so let's go in our second attribute. The power of the resurrection. The power of his resurrection. Let's, let's, let's go to verses 18 through 22. I'm going to go ahead and read this. Uh, so the, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews, that, the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. 
but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture. So, Jesus Christ has just cleansed the temple, and these foolish men ask him for another sign. Another sign. One man cleared a room, not a room, a temple with thousands of people with just a whip of cords, and nobody stopped him, and they want another sign to see who he is. It's pretty foolish. There's really two reasons why I think this is foolish. First, they just didn't get it. They were so blind to what was right before them, they just didn't get it. The Jewish leaders really didn't get it a lot of the time. But in this example, it's so, so obviously clear. They just did not get it. The second reason I think it's foolish is that they knew their own sin. These people, these Jewish leaders that ran the temple, studied the Word of God their entire life. They had to memorize the Torah. They knew how holy God was. They knew how holy this time was. But still, they wanted money. You can't serve two masters, right? They wanted to serve two masters, except for the other master. Money won this. And uh, they ended up selling out the temple of God in this holy holiday. It's a sad, sad thing. Um, So, let's go now to verse 18. Okay. Okay, so... As, as, as you see, so now, now, now we ha- you have these uh, Jewish leaders have now asked him for another sign. They've, they've come out in his face. And so now I want to ask you guys, what type of people say this? These are skeptics, right? Only skeptics want sign after sign when they've already seen a sign. The same skeptics we probably deal with day to day in our lives. The people that stand in the opposition of Jesus Christ, they're skeptics. And there's nothing but the power of the Holy Spirit that can change their hearts. So another miracle isn't going to do it. Jesus did a lot of more miracles after this, actually. But another miracle at that time isn't going to do it. So it's the same thing in our lives, too. When we're, when we're evangelizing, when we're talking to people, we presuppose Christ is Lord. We can't, we can't, we can't spend time trying to show people Extra-biblical messages, extra-biblical miracles that don't really uh, glorify God. In the same way, this is they don't care about God. They just want to make a fool and a mockery of Jesus Christ. It's just, uh, it's just the way it is. People are skeptics, and they're looking for miracles. And really, to you, to you people, let's not be looking for another miracle in our lives to know what God has called us to do something that's outside of what God has already clearly given us. And so we, as these Jewish people, let's, let's not share in this, this, this heritage that they, 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 they laid down on us. Um, so let, let's go in now into verse 19. He responds to the skeptics, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Let's take a look at the precision of his words in verse 20. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. He's, he's emphatically saying that, the temple's going to be destroyed, but I'm going to raise it up. I'm going to do it. Just, just the structure of this sentence is really interesting. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. It, it, was, it was just emphatically saying what was going to happen, that he was a part of this. It was not a work of man, it was a work of him. We, sometimes we pass the precision of the Word of God. Every word in the Word of God matters. The order matters. The Word matters. It's this precision there. God has given us languages 
to make importance of them. And so in this, this, this structure here, in this sentence, means something. He's done this for a reason. Okay. And so, um, and so and of course, just like the skeptics, uh, he's, talking, he's talking to them. And um, you, you see this, uh, this paradox that he's put out in front of them. And it's a similar paradox he does all throughout the Gospel of John. These paradoxes are fascinating. They're really all over the Gospel of John. So I want to kind of illustrate this similar paradox that he's, kind of, that he's putting before them. Uh, in, in John 3, uh, John 3, verse 3, he says to Nicodemus, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Jesus is talking about spiritual truth here. Okay, but listen to Nicodemus' response to this. Nicodemus says, Oh, how can a man enter his mother's womb and be born again? Nicodemus is talking about physical truth. This happens all over. Jesus goes straight to the heart of spiritual truth, and man goes straight to the heart of physical truth. Okay, let's go into chapter 4. It, it always happens this way. So he says, um, so Jesus is talking to the woman at the well in Samaria. Whosoever drinks of this water I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing to everlasting life. And the woman says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water that I may, not, I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. So the same thing as Nicodemus. She's seeking physical. Christ is talking about spiritual. She just misses it. And then, uh, let's keep going. In, in chapter 6, it's another great illustration. Verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread which I will give is my flesh. And the Jews said in the next verse, His flesh? How can a man give his flesh? And the Jews said in the next verse, and so it, it, just, it happens again and again. Time and time again. One more. Chapter 7, 34. You shall seek me and you shall not find me. Where I am, there you cannot come. And they immediately go, where is he going? Is he going over to the Greeks? This is like, it happens time and time again. Now, the, the, the truth is, Jesus Christ talks in veiled terms throughout this entire process. He talks in paradoxes because he does not really, he, he says, those have ears, ears to hear, let them hear. And so these people just weren't going to hear it. They weren't going to see it. But Christ gave them the option. He, he laid it down. In the context of these verses, it's very clear what he's talking about anyway. You had to be blind to miss it. But to some degree, I don't want to be too bold to say that I would have got every single one of these because some of them the disciples didn't get. The most of them the disciples didn't get. And that really brings me to my next point. Uh, when, it, when it says in verse 21, actually, let's go to verse 21 where it says, but um, verse 21 says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body when therefore he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he said this. And then in verse 22, they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So, in, in that section, uh, even the disciples, if you remember the, the structure here, the disciples said after he had resurrected, they remembered what he said. So, they remembered the, Mosaic, mo, the, the, the messianic prophecy of this in Psalm 16 and 22 after he had been resurrected. So, while he's saying these things, after he cleanses the temple, they don't know what's going on really. They're, they're really in the same camp as the Jewish leaders. But, the, but verse 22 clearly says the disciples remembered after the resurrection. So even they were as lost. And sometimes we're, we're, we're sometimes like that also. 
But the difference between the disciples and the Jewish leaders is that the disciples were faithful, even without having all the information. They moved forward. They walked side by side with Christ. They didn't know, but they were there. They did the work. Thank God they did the work. So Jesus is emphatically claiming that he will conquer death, he will be killed, he will raise on the third day. His power for the resurrection is uh, like the Jews were lost. His power of the resurrection is all that mattered. And you, you see that similarly, similarly um, as, as, as the disciples um, see his power in the resurrection, they also refer to the word of God. And this is an important thing for us because really as we, as we deal with skeptics, we have to remember that uh, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers and powers and against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual for, for, forces of the wickedness in the, in the heavenly places. Fellow believers, we are in a, in a time and a place where it's not about the flesh. It's not about just the flesh. There, there's, a, there's a serious war going on that, that, that supersedes just the physical. There's a spiritual, spiritual thing that's happening in our lives, in our, in, in the, in our midst, in our churches, and just all around us. And really, things like what happened this last week in Boston are really a good example of that. That these bad things happen. And now we're in a, now we're in a time, as, as, as a Christian church, we have an opportunity to be around where people start asking the big questions, the transcendent questions. Why did this happen? Does God care? And we, we, have, we have an opportunity to tell them and, and be by them and care for them. We don't have to give them the answer right away. We can be by their side. And God gives us that in his resurrection, in the power of his resurrection. So we know the answer through this. That this is, this is only, a, this is a temporary pain. But in Revelation 20, it says, every, every tear will be wiped away. And so, let's move on to our, to our, third, um, our third point. The power, I'm sorry, his perception of reality. Verses 23 through 25. Now when, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So verse 23, you can clearly see that uh, people now in this, in this verse are starting to see that Jesus Christ has cleansed the temple, either, either they were there or, they, or, or someone told them, and now they're starting to kind of believe. They're starting to believe that Jesus Christ has done something. They want, to, they want to now follow Christ. But something happens in verse 24. He intentionally denies the seeking new believers. That sounds a little bit out of, out of the ordinary. But he intentionally uh, denies their, their, um, their seeker mentality. He does not commit himself, the word says. He does not commit himself to them. So we, we recap this a little bit. He's cleansed the temple and now we have people that are, quote-unquote, believing in him, and he does not receive that. You, you might say, wait, my, G, my Jesus? My Jesus, the same Jesus that, if you, if you just say you believe in him, it, it, it'll be okay? This section's saying wrong to that. Now, I don't want to confuse you, because the wrong I'm talking about is the wrong for the false witness. The false witness. 
These people were false witnesses. Christ says he knew what was in man. He knew their hearts. His perception of reality was very clear here. They saw the big miracle, and now they want to come out. Similar to the 5,000 that were fed later on in the Gospels. He fed 9,000, actually. 5,000 and 4,000 later. And he fed a lot more that probably the Bible doesn't talk about. But at one point, he just brings the message up, makes it harder, because the people didn't really care about Jesus Christ or his mission. So in the same way as these skeptics here, that start to supposedly become seekers now, Jesus Christ is not hearing that. He's not a part of that. So this is a, a very, very, very odd thing for some people to read when they, when they look at this section of Scripture. And um, it's, a, it's a real um, serious thing that we, we have an opportunity to, to hear all this, but we also um, have an opportunity to miss it. But thank God Christ has given us his, his son to die for us. And really, frankly, if, if someone here tonight does not believe or does not know Jesus Christ, I ask you, I beg you, I plead with you, I appeal to you by the word of God that um, you give your life to Christ. Make him your ultimate treasure. This is not just about legalism or me telling you to do this, but this is about love and compassion. Make him your ultimate treasure. The Word of God says that it, the, the gospel, the kingdom of God is like a treasure buried in a field that a man goes and buries, that sells everything he has to buy that field, right? So make that your treasure. That's what Christ is calling us to. Let, let our lives be compelled by the love of God, but boldly compelled in the same way Christ did here. He didn't need man. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. He made us for His glory so that we could be known, um, so that He could be known, and that we could see His life and see His love and see the things that He has, um, has given us. So He doesn't need any more shallow worship. He doesn't need any more false witnesses. Um, he needs um, just our love and our care. Okay? But today we've seen three attributes of God. The power, the passion of His reverence, the power of His resurrection, and the perception, his perception of reality. The Jewish leaders missed it. Now my question to you is, do you see it? Do you see it? I'm going to pray us out. Heavenly Father, I, um, I thank you for uh, just this night and this, uh, this word. Oh Lord, it is so, um, so convicting to see how you, uh, being God in the flesh, did so many things that men do, but yet so many things that men cannot do that only God can do. That you have this uh, unbelievable desire for reverence and for sinlessness that only can be achieved by your sacrifice. And then you have this power uh, of the resurrection that you give us the hope of having one day where we can be with you in the new heavens and new earth, Lord. And then... You have this perception of our soul, God. That we have a soul that is wholly um, transparent to you, God. And that all men are under that, Lord. So I pray that we today would submit ourselves to you uh, out of joy. Not out of um, legalism or just uh, lostness, but out of joy because we love you and we want to be your children, Father. So come over to this church, come over to these people. And bless us. So in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.